This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is fiction writer Adam Johnson. His novel, The Orphan Master's Son, won the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and his short story collection, Fortune Smiles, won the 2015 National Book Award for Fiction. Johnson was raised in Arizona and earned an MFA in creative writing at McNeese State University and a PhD in English from Florida State University. He lives in San Francisco and teaches at Stanford. We began the discussion talking about his distinct voice on the page. When I write a story, I usually try to just, I guess I've learned to trust my obsessions rather than think they're quirky things. And so if there's um, something that I'm just turning over and over in my head and I keep coming back to and I find myself on eBay late at night buying too much stuff from New Zealand or Amsterdam or, you know, or listening to certain music over and over or getting deep into archery and having to buy bow after bow after bow. I think I've learned that if I put that into a story, that the unknown force that's connecting me to all those things will follow into the story too. And there, usually that's an emotional thing. Um, and that will just go into the story and fuel it and charge it. Are you an only child? I am, yeah. And uh, I'm an only child of an only child. I had a lot of time on my hands when I was a kid. And my mom was trying to start her um, private practice. So I was a real latchkey kid who would get up in the morning and my mom would be gone. And I would make, uh, you know, my oatmeal. And then I would come home after school and I would have all afternoon until she was home, home in the evening. So I spent a lot of time in my own head. What was the weirdest thing that you did when you were alone? You know, I had a bicycle, and my kids, we, we were like, we watched them like hawks. But I guess it was, those were different times, and I had a bicycle. And even as a little kid, a grade schooler, I would roam great distances, miles and miles uh, on my own, and go to stores and the Pop Palace and things like that. I, I, one thing I used to like to do was, I, and I don't know, like, it's one thing I did, um, was that I grew up in Arizona and behind all the houses were like backyards and then fences and then like alleys where all the trash cans were. And I would go down the alleys and I would like open up people's trash cans and stare at all of their garbage. And, um, I, I don't know why I did it. I wasn't really like looking for like treasures or anything, but I was always kind of like trying to figure out who lived in those houses by what they threw away. So considering the amount of freedom you had as a child, what is it in- that interests you about places that are constricted in freedom? And I'm thinking about, you know, writing about North Korea, writing about East Germany, writing about voices that are really hard to to even research and find more about. Well, that's probably just, you know, sensing the narrative potential of a situation or a location. I think uh, readers always have instant sympathy for a character who's in a trap. 
uh, whether that's you know an emotional trap or a relationship trap or or a physical trap, some a place where people aren't free to exercise the options they they might want to. Um, I think we also really um, have a great deal of feeling for characters who um, who cannot articulate uh, what it is that's wrong with them. They feel true and resonant, and they feel like real people. They're not experts on their own stories. Or some people can't tell their stories because of like the consequences. There's a story uh, in my new story collection, Fortune Smiles, called Dark Meadow, and it's about it's about a guy, and he has uh, sexual urges towards uh, adolescents. You'd think, oh, I, I don't want to, um, you know, spend any time with this monster. I, I, don't, I would cross the street to avoid a person like that. But narratively, the story's constructed. Here's a character who is t- trapped in this world. He cannot help, you know, how he's become who he is. And he also can't tell anyone in the world you know, at, at his great peril, what's going on. And so as the story progresses, like just a couple, you know, narrative maneuvers make the reader, force the reader to really kind of care about this guy and his flight. And um, it's a pretty amazing thing that the story can, can do that. What do you mean by narrative maneuvers? You know, stories are constructed to gain the deepest psychological access and the truest portrait of someone. And in our real lives, you know, we don't necessarily con- confront our deepest issues. In fact, we try to avoid them, and we don't really reveal those things to others, lest they make us vulnerable. And so we go through our lives keeping those things hidden in private. But in literature, you know, we do the opposite. Uh, we don't let people get away with being functional. Um, we construct um, stories through maneuvers, like adding other elements or putting people in certain situations or having developments that force them to confront uh, these things that we normally you know, are better off in terms of like being functional people, you know, avoiding. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Adam Johnson author of the novel The Orphan Master's Son and the short story collection Fortune Smiles. I know you do a lot of research for your stories, and the story you're talking about, Dark Meadow, is about a guy who has urges for this adolescence, sexual urges, and you can't really get online and start Googling pedophilia because someone (laughs) will knock on your door from law enforcement. So how did you go about researching this story? Probably the one time I didn't research a story because, like you, I you know I didn't want to type anything into a Google bar because all of that's tracked. I have a friend in the Arizona prison system, and he works with uh, sex offenders uh, who are incarcerated in group therapy sessions, and um, he also works with their parole officers, um, you know, to help them transition, you know, when they get outside, and you know he's dedicated his whole life to this topic. He's a Christian. I think he feels, you know, called by God to do this this kind of work that maybe other people aren't itching to do. Um, and every time I'm back in Arizona and I see him, you know, I'm always curious about the, the, the work he does, which is not the kind of work most people do. And he gets insights that most people don't. And he's just, I would hit him with all these curious questions uh, about who these men are and et cetera. Um, and he'll just say they're people, they're humans, 
he's always r- reminding me of their humanity and um, that they're not wired wrong or broken or traumatized. And, you know, he talks about, um, it's not necessarily the depiction in my story, but he talked about the ways in which many people can go down a path of overstimulation and uh, other means that kind of get them into these, you know, dark territories where they don't understand boundaries anymore. Um, and, you know, I just, it was always hard for me to believe, you know, that people who make these transgressions have their full humanity. Um, but I just want, but that's what fiction's for, you know, is you project your humanity onto uh, onto figures that you can't quite access through other means. And I decided if, to see if I could go find that humanity myself. It's funny that we're talking a lot about Dark Meadow because I listened to it online. You read it, and I found a copy of that online and listened to it. It was over an hour. And I'm just wondering if your experience of reading your work out loud is different than when you read it to yourself and just sort of the art form of writing for the page versus something that's spoken. Well, you know, there is that performative dimension. You probably know the the, the experience of going to a reading and, and, you know, the reader turns out to kind of be terrible. Um, he or she doesn't like hear the rhythm of their own work or hear the beauty in the language or has like a flat intonation. Um, and then sometimes, you know, people surprise you and they perform the work so well that you hear new things in deeper dimensions. Um, I do, I do love the spoken word. I do love to read. And so, uh, you know, I have several of my stories that I've just gone down into the sound labs at Stanford and just recorded just because mm, the story isn't kind of complete, you know, until I give voice to it. Um, you know, there's a, I, I also did a recording of the story Nirvana, um, which is about a husband and a wife who's sick and it mirrored some some things that were going on in my own family, and I had never read it before. And um, when I went down into the lab, the sound engineer who who recorded a couple stories for me before, he said, "Hey, I've got this new mic. Can I use it out?" And I said, "Okay," said, but I got to I got to be really close. I said, "I said all right." He said, "Actually, I got to hold it like like an inch from your mouth while you read it." And I was like, "Okay." So we squeezed into the sound booth together, and um, uh, he. He actually kind of had to put his arm kind of under my arm into my armpit to put the mic right in my face and our cheeks were like almost touching. And, um, and then for like 45 minutes, I read this short story Nirvana and I'd never really read it aloud. And I wasn't prepared for, you know, all the emotion about my wife's health issues coming out. And at some point in the story, I started, um, weeping <laughs> and, um, you know, I kind of looked over his face was red, like two inches from mine, and the tears were streaming down his face. But there was nothing to be done. The mic couldn't move. And um, so for like 10 minutes, the two of us just kind of cried and, and uh, you know, read a story together. Um, and so, like, that's something you don't get from encountering a story on the page. So Nirvana is your wife have, has dealt with breast cancer, and you have another story about that, too, in there. But you, yeah. we, she was going through this when you wrote Nirvana, and you sort of changed her affliction 
and the husband was worried she was going to commit suicide and then this drone comes and the only way he finds comfort for him is to sort of meld together all of these um, speeches and talks that the president gave and they have these conversations. Right. This takes place, I think it's Palo Alto. Right, And yeah. And so I can sense the influence that teaching at Stanford and living in the Bay Area has on your stories. You know, for you, where is that melding between technology and emotion and technology and narrative? Stanford does have an influence on me. Uh, I'm sure any university, like, you know, there's just, it's a hotbed of ideas and, um, you know, there's pollinization that goes on with all the people who come through. Um, But this is also the home to, you know, Hewlett-Packard and Apple and Google and, you know, Google has 24 campuses, you know, around Stanford and it is kind of crazy out here. Um, So, like, I remember I saw my first self-driving car, a Google car, it was like six years ago now, just kind of, it passed me going down down the freeway. And I was like, oh yeah, the world is different now. Um, and, you know, I'm going to see it a little before others. And when you're at Stanford, like autonomous things zip past you balancing on one wheel and with a solar panel on top. And you look around for the person operating it and they aren't there. Um, so it's hard for these wonders to not seep into your imagination. But of course, the big question is, you know, what's, what do these things, you know, do to us? And I, I also see people you know, driving, you know, while operating two phones at once. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if uh, we were put on this earth to, to, uh, to do that as well. Do you think it's the responsibility of modern writers to include this? Well, this is, this is a very serious question. Um, because our, jo- our jobs are to, um, capture the verisimilitude of life. And, um, you know, the deep psychological sensibilities of the people, you know, encountering, you know, these surfaces of the world. I do believe that something eternal about being human. Uh, that's why the, you know, Grecian urn speaks to us, so to speak. Um, but we are in a pretty different place, um, compared to the history of, of mankind. And, um, I, I don't, you know, you know, I'm on Facebook to kind of, you know, share some stuff, but, uh, the rest of it, I, I don't really look at my phone or do much with it. And maybe I'm just of a different, you know, generation. Um, but all the writers I know are terrified of, of phones narratively. Um, and there's something really weird about, um, about this conundrum. Um, if you if all of your characters aren't looking at their phones, they're somehow not of the now, they're not real, there's uh, some essential lie going on. Um, but um, but it seems to me phones are like the antithesis of narrative um, and somehow like anti-human when you look at them on the page. What does it do to your story to have cell phones in it? Um, first of all, the story a story is a linear form that unfolds sentence by sentence and therefore it's based on withholding and so you can only say one thing at a time and everything else must wait but the essence of a phone is the opposite it's immediate it's distant it's personal 
it's intimate, it's secret. Anyone can reveal anything at any moment. And so just that kills the, with the propulsive withholding energy of a story. Of course, the management of revelation uh, structures the story, um, and a phone will destroy that as well. Um, stories build um, toward moments of confrontation, of uh, externalization, of inward thoughts, of two people taking risks to reveal essential things in person to one another. But what if you can do that at any time from a distance, you know, anonymously or personally, um, uh, without having to um, enact your desires by making a choice to engage another human being and taking all the risks that come with it, a phone undermines every one of those things. Um, you know, I teach a class at Stanford, which is, you know, the Stegner workshop, which has, you know, some really amazing young writers in it. And I asked them last year, I said, how are you handling phones? Because I didn't know how to do it. And they said, we're not, you know, they said, we're scared to death of them. And, um, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more period fiction <laughs> because it just, you know, my generation doesn't know what to do with it. But I think young people will come along in which it makes total sense for them when they'll write, you know, different kinds of stories, I suppose. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Adam Johnson, author of the novel The Orphan Master's Son and the short story collection Fortune Smiles. Well, it's interesting because when you're talking about the phone and the difficulty of co- having conversations, Many of your characters and all of your stories are about men in loss. So it seems to me they, they, they're they missing the other half of their conversation, whether someone lost his wife because she left him or th- their wife died or is dying. Can you talk about lost spouses and men in loss and why that mm. intrigues you? Mm. You know, my wife came from this like all-American, you know, nuclear family four kids, parents married 50-some years, um, and it just was the opposite of my experience. And I always, like, study them with this kind of awe, like, how did it work? You know, my experience as a little kid was, like, my parents getting divorced and being taught inadvertently that, like, the most essential things in life can end suddenly and without notice um, and irrevocably. I remember my parents, like, they never fought because they didn't want to, you know, have that in my life. And when they decided to get divorced, um, they decided not to tell me. And so I remember coming home from grade school one day, and um, there was a moving van out front. And um, uh, everything in the the house, except the bed in my room, was in the van already. I remember my parents, you know, sat me down and... They both look down at me together, and they're like, "We want to tell you how much we love you," you know. And I just like, you know, I knew I was screwed right then, even as a little kid. And uh, and that and that was that. And this feeling that anything can end, even the most essential things can fall apart, or or maybe are falling apart, and you don't even know it. You're the last to know. That's in in my DNA as a writer, honestly. And uh, it's going to get into my work. But what I'm drawn to is like how a family does function well um, and does, you know, enforce all these bonds and express love and commitment. And 
my wife and I, this is our, you know, main goal in life. You know, we have three kids, we have a foster child, and to try to do this thing right. Yeah, well, I want to talk about your story of Fortune Smiles. Yeah. It's the last story in the collection, and it's about two friends, DJ and Sun Ho, who defected from North Korea to South Korea. And it sort of addresses the idea that when you get what you wish for, freedom, it's not always what you hope. It it doesn't make life better or all right. There's there's challenges to going and charting this new course where freedom is in, is endless. And there's something about, you know, in that story, um, one, the, these two buddies defect together, but, you know, one wanted to defect more than the other. And there's something about relationships, how one person, you know, um, decides to strive for something, to take chances for something, to go into this uncharted territory. And um, maybe the other person isn't so sure. And that's going to, you know, test everything, probably. I, I do see a lot of that in, in my, you know, observable world about uh, our willingness to take chances uh, for people who are, who are coupled that way. But, you know, I, in a more kind of primal way, you know, I had written this, uh, a novel, The Orphan Master's Son, about North Korea. It's set there. And I think I un- inadvertently suggested um, in the writing of the book that uh, all you had to do was to get out of North Korea and your life would be happy. But just because of how the book was shaped, you know, we don't follow a character out, really. But from the inside, that's that was the thinking. And uh, even though I knew that to be not true at all, even though that all the defector stories I'd read and the people I'd talked to, life was actually very difficult once they got out. Shockingly difficult. And so, well, I, I was kind of done with the subject matter of North Korea. I did really care about all the defectors I'd met and their plights. And I was going to write a big kind of nonfiction piece about it. And I went to South Korea and to New Zealand and Australia to interview a couple of defectors. And uh, one had run an kind of a, a pan-Asian used car scheme, you know, and another was also kind of a corrupt agent for the government as well. They were interesting defectors because they'd been high level. And so one did have a black Mercedes and a driver and, you know, did all the things that are depicted in the story. And um, in, in the end, I really felt that, like, because so much of their lives took place in North Korea, even though they were free now, that, and because that portrait can't be verified or confirmed through journalistic terms, I just felt that fiction could capture that realm and the truth of their experience better. So I took, like, I interviewed these guys multiple times. Um, and I actually, you know, kind of used their experience as the basis for for a piece of writing. And for me, like, for fiction, like, the imagination is stimulated by things that are half-seen. And, you know, in the interview, I, interviews I had in one of them, he mentioned that, you know, when he defected, um, he defected with his uh, driver. And I thought, wow, did his, only later, like, when I when I had left Korea and I, I didn't really have access to him anymore, I wondered, did his driver want to defect? Did his driver want to like 
leave track of his family, leave all connections to everything he'd ever had and have no communications and never hear from any of them ever again. Um, that notion of the perspective of the unwilling defector um, really stimulated my imagination. That was the story I wanted to tell. One of the my favorite lines in, in the story and in the book was, so Sunho and DJ, they love going to fast food. Well, really, right. Sunho does, and DJ go, takes him. And when they go to this one fast food restaurant, Sunho cuts in line in front of everybody waiting. And you write, Sunho studied them a moment, then shook his head. He had no patience for South Koreans with their all-powerful sense of order and compliance. It was one thing to surrender to the rule of a murderous dictator, but what unseen forces did these Southerners obey? Tell me about writing that. It's a question we could all ask about our own society. What are the norms that we don't question, and how do we fall in line and toe the line, so to speak? Um you know, the North Korean defectors, I think, you know, in many ways, um, it's an unsentimental place. And especially people who were alive during the famine of late 90s um, had to learn <clears throat> to survive in certain ways. And, um, you know, I, I think it's said, I don't know if it's necessarily true across the board, that the North Korean defectors are kind of direct and intense and maybe a little aggressive in certain ways, and um, by, you know, by necessity, um, that they're, they're survival, survivors in a certain way. And, you know, I think when you go to another society, you can see things that um, people within it can't, you know, easily or readily perceive. And that's very true of us, too, you know, when people come to, to America. But as an outsider in, in South Korea, uh, it's a very homogenous place and has a, a, a strong sense of, of civil order and uh, of unwritten codes everywhere. And uh, I was, you know, surprised at the degree to which, um, you know, we think of North Korea uh, a certain way. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the rules can be turned as well. So I read something you said once, which was, when you start a story, there are a thousand doors to go through, but when you finish, there's only one. And I could see how this could be clear in a story like this, but harder in a story like Dark Meadow. How right. do you find that door? I'm so concerned with, like I said, you know, I just write to believe. Do I believe this dialogue? Do I believe that this person, like in Dark Meadow, you know, do I believe that he's a computer guy? Do I believe that he knows this world? Do I believe he's been hurt in an essential way? Do I believe he's really attracted to these, to these girls next door? I just kind of like get caught up in like making every scene utterly convincing to myself that I often lose track of like structure. You know, I got to uh, that story and uh, I knew that I was going to have to send our narrator back not back, but in to confront in person a world he'd only encountered online. And um, kind of after this kind of, sh sh he visits the studio where, you know, exploitation films are made. And, um, you know, kind of in the wake of that, like for me, that was what the story had to do. And I didn't really know what to do with it after that. And, um, you know, he, I, I gave this story to my wife and, you know, um, she said, oh, it's so clear, you know, he has to masturbate at the end. <laughs> he has to learn to take contr control of this. 
you know. And um, I thought, oh my God, it was it was so obvious, you know. Um, but I I was blind to it. And like at that the story Nirvana, I mean, I have um, I just wanted to get to this moment of intimacy for these characters who'd been estranged, and they do have sex, and it's a different kind of sex scene because you know, one of the persons is, is paralyzed. And of course, it forces confrontation of all their emotions. And uh, it was a very kind of difficult scene to write. And that was the purgative scene for me to write. And afterwards, I had no idea what to do. <laughs> I gave the story to my wife. I said, I'm stuck. And she said, you idiot, you know, you have um, a woman who loves you know, Kurt Cobain, and you have a machine that brings people back to life. You know, the element, my mind put all the elements there uh, in the on the page, um, and yet didn't you know make the final connection. So that last door, I, I um, is as elusive to me as it is to others. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Adam Johnson, author of the novel The Orphan Master's Son and the short story collection Fortune Smiles. Can you talk about an author that influenced you as a writer? You know, I really believe that certain writers hit you, um, you know, at, at, at a sweet spot. Like you need someone to shine the light in a certain direction. Um, and, you know, for me, I remember, like, um, Elizabeth Gilbert's short story collection, Pilgrims. Um, you know, Mark Richard's stories, The Ice at the Bottom of the World, kind of used language um, and setting in ways I had I had never, like, imagined um, in my work. And they just, you know, opened, opened doors and passageways. Uh, I remember Don DeLillo's Libra was like one of the huge books for me, this kind of operatic um, investigation of the Kennedy assassination that melded fiction and research and what we knew and what could have been. He also roamed in all of these different perspectives. And to me, he took language to an entire level uh, that that I didn't know was even possible. And, that that book by Delillo, I I think I I spent you know twenty years trying to write that book and um, you know like the orphan master's son is is my version of it a big mix of reality and fantasy and uh, language and all these kind of structural maneuvers um, that was maybe an ode to him in a you know really primitive way. How about, do you want to talk about, or if you have a passage of something you wrote that was tricky or hard or something that changed a lot from the first draft? Well, I keep a copy of my book in my back pocket at all times. Let me, wait a minute. It must have fallen out. Oh, here's a copy of my book right here. The Orphan Master's Son. You know, like the book opens, um, there are three voices in the book. There's, um kind of um, a kind of a third person narrative which kind of follows fairly faithful uh, faithfully our central character and then there's like a um, a first person voice and this is a, a, the voice of an interrogator who you know tries to get the story out of this character afterward and the story's so incredible our first person narrator can't quite believe it 
that once he takes the story from our character, the state takes the story from the interrogator and turns it into propaganda. And so we hear this person's tale three different ways. But we see the reality of it. We see the impossibility of it from a fellow citizen. And then we see it twisted to be used by the state. And so this voice in the book of, um, of a loudspeaker um, was one that was really uh, difficult but satisfying to, to get right. The book opens, Citizens, gather around your loudspeakers, for we bring important updates. In your kitchens, in your offices, on your factory floors, wherever your loudspeaker is located, turn up the volume. In local news, our dear leader Kim Jong-il was seen offering on-the-spot guidance to the engineers deepening the Taedong River Channel. While the dear leader lectured to the dredge operators, many doves were seen to spontaneously flock above him, hovering to provide our Reverend General some much-needed shade on a hot day. Also to report is a request from Pyongyang's Minister of Public Safety, who asks that while pigeon-snaring season is in full swing, tripwires and snatch loops be placed out of the reach of our youngest comrades. And don't forget, citizens, the ban on stargazing is still in effect. Do you want to say anything else about that? You know, uh, I started reading um, the Pyongyang newspaper, the Rodong Shenmun, which means the Workers' Party paper. They translate it uh, into English. And so, you know, I read it every morning for like five years. and. Um, like before I read American news, uh, I was pretty obsessed. Uh, you know, things like, that would be a headline, doves circling to shade Kim Jong-il as he takes a walk. Um, and Kim Jong-il lecturing every day, normal people on the best way to do things. Getting this paternal, propagandistic, fairy tale voice right um, was, a, was a real test for the book. And actually, like, this page that I read from was the last page that I wrote. It was so, I had to know those other five or 600 pages completely before I could get the voice that emanated from it. Where do you write? I write in um, uh, a medical library at the University of uh, California, San Francisco Medical Campus. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Wow. Oh, is that possible? Are you talking about like procrastination? No, but maybe you don't. I mean, some people do judo. Some people cook. Maybe you don't. You know, maybe it's occupying you all the time. <laughs> I do feel like, you know, all those lines of dialogue keep popping up while you're, you know, in the shower or eating your Wheaties. I, I think my, whether I'm aware of it or not, I think my mind is always working on fiction. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Oh, to my wife. And how have you dealt with rejection? Oh, um, you know, a rejection's an opportunity to steal yourself and, you know, your confidence of, of the rightness of your work. And what is your favorite word? I think one word? <laughs> that doesn't seem very fair. I could only pick one word. I don't think I have one, you know, chambered. Okay. I would say the, 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 the right word at the time is probably the best word. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Adam Johnson, author of the novel The Orphan Master's Son and the short story collection Fortune Smiles. 
You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.